G'day, it's time to talk about Australia's favourite obsession, property. My name's Jeremy Cowan and this is my podcast where I get to talk about my favourite topic, property. And today I've got a very special guest with a very unique connection to property. As I mentioned, Community is this guy. He is Mr Community, he's won an Order of Australian Medal for his service to the community and was a councillor for many, many years and served as the Mayor of Nilimbik in Victoria. Now, some of you might be wondering why a podcast about property would be talking with a local mayor. But it's important to remember that government-granted licences are one of the key concepts that drives prices higher along with population. So who better than a local mayor to talk about how zoning, planning infrastructure and community spirit can impact on property prices? Warwick Leeson, OAM, welcome to Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Yeah, g'day Jeremy, pleased to be with you. Look, Warwick, we're going to spend a fair bit of time later on talking about planning and development and the power that councils hold. But I first wanted to ask you, when you were growing up, was community important to you or was it something that you grew into? No, I think uh, when I grew up, um, community was absolutely integral. It was part of the DNA. Uh, You've got to remember that uh, because I've been around on this earth for a fair while, when I grew up initially, uh, we didn't have television. So all the interaction was outside the house with other kids in the street. And we interacted not just with the kids, but with their parents. So it was was nothing to be having lunch or dinner at somebody else's place or them coming to, to our place for the same thing. So community has always been front and centre for me. So when was it that you realised that you had a passion for local politics? I guess just the... It was a natural evolution from being involved in um, a number of sporting groups and things like that. And I always considered that it wasn't just what happened out on the field, but it was what happened in the boardroom that was really important. And I was on, as well as participating in sports, I always wanted to be on the committees and be part of the decision-making. I guess hands-on levers sort of stuff. So... When you became the mayor, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but what was the thing that most that you most enjoyed about being the mayor of Nilnbik? Meeting, mixing with people, hearing their various ideas, uh, and, and just, I suppose, again, coming back to that, and it sounds a bit trite, being part of making communities stronger, safer, and more resilient. That, that really is what motivates me completely, Jeremy. I guess this is a really important point because at the end of the day, um, the community spirit and the feel and the look of a community has a very large impact on the desirability and the sort of person that wants to live in a particular community. So the impact and the decisions that you're making as a councillor, you know, they... they, they um, uh, they determine the culture and, and the spirit of the community, which in turn develops, um, you know, who is going to be living there, which in turn um, means whether there's greater or lesser demand for a particular suburb and consequently that'll reflect back into into land prices. And it's um, it, it does amaze me how, you know, how much impact a council actually can have with regards to where a particular community heads and, and where it doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, while zoning is some uh, a decision of the state government, maintaining the character and amenity of the municipality is very much in the in the uh, realm of the local council. So, how did it come about? I guess it 
uh, when I'd moved into Nillimbik, first of all, into Kangaroo Ground, which is part of Nillimbik Shire, uh, not long after that, there had been um, an attempt to um, impact significantly on one of the, the roads through our area. Big roads wanted to make it much wider, straighter, and subsequently faster. And it, it struck me that it wasn't an appropriate sort of development. And I and other people um, took Big Roads to task over it. We sort of, uh, I suppose, we had a bit of a win, they had a bit of a win, uh, but it really got me fired up about protecting the amenity and the character of the area that my wife and I had chosen to live in. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Because I, um, I would have loved to have been the mayor in some ways. In, in fact, when I lived in Jeffrey Street and Parkside, a lot of my friends used to call me the, the mayor of Jeffrey Street as a bit of a joke because I was always <laughs> out and about in the street and talking to everyone. But what was it that, if you look back in your time as the mayor, what makes you most proud of what you achieved? Um, I guess the the placing of the Nillibic Council in a strong financial position that was uh, that was the result of having to make some really tough decisions, and we had to hike the rates up. This was long before the two percent rate cap. We had to hike the rates up very significantly because the the council budget that we inherited we were almost broke. We were you know, bordering on bankruptcy. Wow, I didn't realise that. Yep, and we we took the, the very principled but very difficult decision and politically unwise decision, I guess you could say, but Nellenbeck is still in a strong financial position uh, because of those decisions. Um, basically, you had the decision either you cut services or increase rates and you decided to continue to, um, to maintain service levels and, and increase the, the cost of which um, you, know, you needed to, or the revenue you needed to increase to pay for Essentially, those. yes. Uh, Millenbeck is a, a sort of no to slow growth area. It's a green wedge municipality and the development in the area will never be what it is in the, the neighbouring ones, which are sort of, in many cases, aggressively um, developmental. Okay. So, in your opinion, what role does property play in local government thinking and their decision-making and as the mayor, how much influence do you have on these sort of outcomes? Uh, well, property is absolutely integral. There's two sort of two groups of people who are in the municipality. There are the owners of property, and then there are the renters. The ones that have decided to invest in property, the owners, they actually go ahead and they pick an area that they want to to live in, and they pick it for a whole range of reasons. In the case of Millenbeck, it is a very strong environmental focus, um, but they still want services, and you, you can't not provide services. Some of them are, there's a statutory obligation on. Others, well, it would be nice to have, but, uh, but the people expect these things because their neighbours are getting it. Well, it's got to be paid for because if you've got a load of slow growth area, you don't have the numbers of people to be able to, to uh, fund it without the rates being high. And Nellenbeek's rates are the highest in the state. Yeah, okay. Unapologetically. The, the, uh, 
the advantage of the people who actually own their property as distinct from renting is that they have much more skin in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a much greater uh, sense of community engagement in them because they're there for the long haul. Renters, and again, it's a generalisation, but renters in many cases aren't there for the long haul. They're there for the convenience of it uh, and or maybe because that's their only option but they tend to be less engaged in community events and activities than the, the property owners. So, as I said before, like a thriving and vibrant community will make a location much more desirable than one that isn't. And the increased desirability will, of course, continue to attract competition from those wanting to move into both uh, renters and particularly purchasers um, or landowners. Does the council really appreciate the financial value that a thriving community creates for landholders? Is that in part of their thinking or is it is their thinking more about just wanting to create the community and they don't think about the byproduct of the value that it creates to those or the financial value it creates uh, to yeah. those in the, in the, as landholders? Jeremy, I don't think that the that byproduct is front and centre in mind. Um, it, it's more about providing a community and providing the infrastructure for the, the community that's in keeping with the character and amenity that people came into. That doesn't mean you can't change anything. You clearly do. Uh, I was never... There are many people who say, well, look, you develop everything, and there are those who say you don't develop anything. I was always in the middle. If it was an appropriate development, then you have a, an obligation to approve it. Uh, you may be able to tweak it if necessary, but to at least approve it, rather than just say, throw the hands up and say, no, we don't want this here, no, we don't want that there, uh, without any sound grounds other than just an ideology. That's actually one of the reasons I was keen to get you on, um, is because you do sit, as you said, in a green wedge that is um, a, a green, has a very green outlook, a very environmental outlook, and yet... Um, we do live in a world that has development and certainly Nilibic has had quite um, substantial development in all sorts of ways. And so, you know, you need to be able to balance the environment and the desires of the, uh, of the con current constituents with, as you said, the, you know, developing needs of a community. So um, the fact that you were able to walk that line between environment and development, I think is actually, you know, I, I really take my hat off to you because it would have been quite difficult a lot of the time, I would imagine. Yes, it is. It, uh, Jeremy, it's very easy for councillors to try to be populist and say, oh, no, well, we'll vote against this, and that, knowing that it would go to BCAT. Um, on appeal, and if it was an appropriate development application, then VCAP would approve it. And there are some councillors, um, not just Millenbeek, who would prefer that option to have the uh, the decision foist upon them effectively, by because they simply lack the, the moral fibre to make the decision themselves, um, without understanding that, of course. It, it's a bad look if you just flick it to somebody else, and it's also an expensive one because. It costs tens of thousands of dollars to uh, to fight in VCAT, mm. um, and if you know you're going to lose, just for the sake of playing politics, it, I could never go down that path. So we believe very much that there's five drivers of property being population, which of course includes community. When people typically talk about 
population. They think of population growth, but we think of it as much bigger than that, including you know that community atmosphere as to the desirability of people wanting to live in an, uh, in a um, particular area. Infrastructure, which of course councils provide plenty of infrastructure. Um, technology credit and government granted licenses, which includes things like zoning. So you said before that property prices really aren't front and centre from a council perspective when they think about community. What about when they're thinking about um, zoning um, or or permitting a particular development? You know, how aware are councils on the value that they can provide to landholders with regards to approvals? A lot of it, uh, a lot of that sort of decision making is taken at the officer level. Um, if it's a, if it is a sound and appropriate development application, um, the officers will almost invariably recommend that it proceed, provided it's not in contrast to the amenity and character. Um, and councillors need to understand that the officers that are employed are independent; they're professional. They understand all the rules and intricacies of, of the regulations far better than any councillors do. Um, so you, go, you, you need to be guided by what the officer recommendation is. It doesn't mean you're bound by it, but you certainly need to have a damn good reason um, to reject it. Okay, so that's really interesting. So what you're really saying is that the council doesn't consider the land value at all. Um, it doesn't really even consider the impact it will have to its own revenue bottom line. It, it's it's about really the um, uh, the rules and regs that are in place and that if it meets that requirement, then it meets that requirement. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Pretty much as simple as that. Uh, more or less, yes. I think one of the things that I'd like to say, Jeremy, about the um, ownership of property is the emotional aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was starkly illustrated to me in the aftermath of the 2009 Victorian Black Saturday bushfires. The people who owned property had a clear point of focus in the recovery and rehabilitation process. And they, that ownership gave them a stability, a real sense of stability. And even though some of them subsequently moved away from the fire zone areas, they had collectively banded together to rebuild their community in the immediate aftermath. Mm. And, and it was really incredibly touching to witness the joy displayed by these people at the incremental recovery um, points along the way. What's well, always said, isn't it, at times of crisis, it brings out yep. the best and worst in people, doesn't it? It does, but the, the renters who'd lost the house in which they lived simply moved out of the area. Yeah. They didn't have that skin in the game. The owners, the people who were either owned it outright or were buying it, they really needed to, to see that their place was going to come back again. Uh, and they banded together with incredible strength, incredible fortitude. So I'm, I just want to ask the question, um, has has council's attitudes changed towards development over the years? And, and I'm thinking specifically um, maybe that the, the, the fires that went through, because it's it was a, an opportunity for the council in some ways to start for many parts of it with a blank canvas again, did that? Did attitudes change, or um, or have attitudes towards development been pretty, um, you know, pretty standard throughout the years? It's it's normally fairly standard. In the immediate aftermath of the fires, there's no question that there were there was a body of thought that said 
if we chop down all the trees, then we won't have any fires. Yeah. Um, that didn't really, thank God, have any serious traction. Uh, it has impacted on the the uh, number and type of applications, but overall, I think places like Nillimbik uh, have been well protected by the zoning um, regime that's been put in by the state government. So we haven't really taken too bad a hit. Um, there will always be those people who buy in and immediately want to subdivide and mm. sort of make a profit. And that to do that, that requires a rezoning so that they can um, have smaller, smaller lots on their on filling in their block of land. Yes. So, from a Nillimbic point of view, how do they go about that when someone approaches the council wanting to? Uh, wanting to rezone a particular piece of land? It depends entirely on what the zoning regulations allow. I mean, uh, I'm on an area that is, uh, my block is 30 acres. Mm -hmm. Um, The minimum is 20 acres. So I can't subdivide down even if I wanted to, and I don't want to. But even if I wanted to, I couldn't. Uh, And there'll be people who will say, oh, well, you know, why couldn't we have two 15s? That's not that far off. Well, the problem is if you start doing that, then where do you finish up? You get people having five and then one and then a half uh, an acre. And um, that's why zoning is really important. And as a, as a councillor, as a council and as a mayor, you're able to make representations to the state government um, either urging them to hold the line on, on zoning or, I guess, if it was a different persuasion council, on getting them to try to change to allow greater development. So that's a really interesting one because, I mean, I personally live in the council of Unley and it appears to me that it's very much a NIMBY attitude in a lot of ways towards development from a lot of residents, residents here um, wanting to preserve their heritage of the suburb. They want to retain the period homes. They don't want the larger blocks cut up into multiple dwellings. And that suits me as a landowner because it obviously helps keep the supply um, of available uh, housing you know, down and maintains our you know, beautiful tree-lined heritage, um, or sorry, a beautiful tree-lined heritage streetscape, yep. um, which, of course, is reflected back in land prices. But how does a council balance that need of a growing community against that NIMBY brigade? Um, begr- What's that word? That NIMBY brigade. Brigade's the, after, brigade's the word I'm after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I guess when you, you um, come into a place like Nillimbik, you understand what the zoning requirements regulations are and there are those people who will try to push the envelope and try to um, exploit every inch of land. Um, But the majority of people who come in here come in because this is the sort of area they want to live in. They want to live in a a place that's got a strong environmental focus. Um, And while the types of development have changed, there's not, in, in a place like Nillimbik, because of this low to slow growth um, attitude, it's never going to change much. It will always be low to slow growth. So from a personal point of view, just switching tack a little bit here, how did your observation of other councillors' behaviours um, play a part in developing your own personal philosophy? 
I always viewed it that we were all elected um, and it didn't matter what majority a person got individually in their election, we were all part of a team. And when I was there, there were nine nine councillors and I was determined that we were going to stay as a team. Didn't mean we all had to agree on things, but we were all going to be respectful for, to one another and try to to discuss things and and. I guess, as in a perfect democracy where it's a contest of ideas, that's what we tried to do. We would have this contest of ideas. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes you can persuade people. Other times, it simply hands up for a vote. So did you ever see, and I'm not necessarily referring to Neil and Bick here, but did you ever see the situation where a powerful vested interest would back a particular candidate to get them onto the local candidate, uh, local council to help influence um, an outcome or uh, for a particular, you know, zoning rechange or to help push a development through? Ah, uh, those, those stories are legion. Um, there are so many instances of it and uh, would be unfair to start to name names, but plenty of times that sort of thing happens. And it's happened in Nilambic, um and it happens in other municipalities. And invariably it's the pro-development people who, who want to do that because they're the ones who can put that sort of money up. So what do you do when you come across that sort of stuff? How do you, how do you handle it? You've got to hope that the, uh, that the voters have put in a majority of people who want to maintain the amenity and character of the municipality um, and just get these people to understand that it's not just about a, a matter of them making a whole lot of money. They're there to represent the people. Um, and you really are a representative of the people. If you're not there for that, I don't know what you're there for. So have you seen that situation where someone has got on and has influenced a decision and there has been a, a, a poor outcome for the community in general rather than the outcome that might have benefited a you know small, uh, a small group? Yes, I have seen those examples. Um, it, more often than not, however... Uh, the person who's there pushing a particularly strong pro-development barrier um, doesn't have the numbers to, to get the day, uh, but it doesn't mean that they always lose out. Sometimes they will because they'll move not into the black and white areas but into the grey areas sometimes and be able to persuade people, that some of their colleagues on council, that maybe this development wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So do councils really understand the power that they have and what it means to a developer or are councils such a big, um, you know, such a big industry, you know, having to look after all sorts of amenities from, um, you know, community buses and libraries and um, waste management and, and, and park maintenance and, and all sorts of other stuff that, that they don't really have the time to think through the ramifications um, that it has for property prices? I guess the answer to that, Jeremy, is that, and I'll, I'll use a place like Nillenbeck as an example, uh, we don't have, um, it's not politically, it's not a political council. So you might have members who are councillors who are members of a political party, but by and large they don't push that particular barrow. As a result of that, they come from a whole range of diverse backgrounds. Many people, unfortunately, are single-issue people 
um, and they'll jump up and down about a kindergarten or this mm-hmm. or that, and they'll get elected on that basis. And when that goal has been achieved or lost, um, they have no further interest in it. And they, they're there for four years, but with no real interest in trying to, um, to look at the big picture. So if we take the situation where we've got a, a development group that wants to change, uh, wants to get approval for a particular development, can you give us an idea of the sort of lobbying that would go on behind closed doors um, for a major project? And, um, you know, how do they try to uh, get those projects approved? Uh, I guess if you've got a councillor who is seriously pro-development, and again, I'm using the Millenbeck type example, and there are other municipalities as Greenwich Shires too. If you've got a councillor, they will unashamedly push a particular barrow. Um, as a councillor, well, I've had experience as a councillor where a colleague would not, if they were making applications themselves, wouldn't go through the front door, which they should have done, but would try to actually persuade their councillor colleagues long before the application was in about the merits of a particular application. And and that's a complete um, conflict of interest and and seeking to compromise their colleagues. Yeah, okay. So when spending decisions are made on infrastructure, you know, large landowners have huge incentives to ensure that they directly benefit from such spends. Do, do councils ever feel pressured or placed um, in a situation where, um, um, you know, an outcome is, you know, because an outcome is going to um, benefit a particular group of people if, a you know, if infrastructure is put in a particular place, how does a how does a council deal with that sort of stuff? I mean, I imagine that would happen quite a bit. I guess it comes back to to one of the um, one of the aspects of a, an individual councillor's character. Do they have respect, and do they accept responsibility? And if you deal with respect and responsibility, then you have to respect all the different viewpoints, but you've got a responsibility to maintain the the overarching principles about that municipality, which is, in, in, in many cases, character and amenity. Yeah. I mean, there will, there will be councillors who will, will easily um, fall over at the first hard breeze, um, and that's that's really sad. But they're the ones that probably shouldn't have stood for council in the first place, and they've probably stood on a single issue. Yeah. And there's nowhere for them to go once that's gone. So if we're talking about positions of integrity, then the environment can be a very emotive subject. Absolutely. So in your experience, how many development decisions were made on fact and how many were made on emotion? Um, I'd like to think that they are all made on fact. Uh, there's probably some line ball ones that were made on um, on just emotion. Uh, I can remember at one stage we had an application in from a particular religious group mm-hmm. who wanted to um, to build a place of assembly. 
and the the neighbours all held the view that these this particular group of people were probably the sort of people who ate their own babies and didn't want them. Yeah. As a counsellor, you have to look at it. Is it an application that ticks all the boxes? And this one did. And it's, it is completely inappropriate to say, well, because I don't support this faith or that faith, I'm going to oppose it. Uh, just as in Bendigo some years back, there was terrific to do, very emotional to do over whether or not a mosque would be allowed into the uh, the area. Ultimately, it ticked all the planning boxes, so it got up. And uh, and so too, in the case of the Nilambic example, so too to this place of assembly application. Um, and uh, there's been no... <laughs> the sun still comes up every morning. Yeah, okay. So what you're really saying is that that those decisions are made without bias, but in in relation to the rules. They should be. They certainly should be. Sometimes um, it doesn't work that way. People can be, I guess, overwhelmed by the number of people who come to them um, saying, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, and they roll over. But instead of um, standing their ground and saying, look, this is an application that, that ticks all the boxes, and as a councillor, I have no real authority to block it. I've got a legal authority to block it, but I have no moral authority, knowing that it will be approved by a higher body, um, in this case, VCAT. I was just going to say, that's exactly where I was going to go. So those are the, the projects or developments that will get referred directly to your VCAT. So that's the Victorian Civil Administration Tribunal. Appeals Tribunal, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. So are there any particular stories that stand out to you that um, uh, that ended up at VCAP that maybe in your mind should have, you know, a, a council decision should have been made rather than it going to VCAP or vice versa where you felt as a council that you'd made a, um, you know, a fair decision and it went to VCAP and either was or wasn't overturned? Um, only two. One was in the case of this um, place of assembly application where... Uh, the council as a body voted to knock it back even though it picked all the boxes it was approved by VCAT this same group of people this religious group of people have subsequently put in other applications and they've all been accepted by council on the basis that well it ticks the boxes so it was a learning curve for council that time mm -hmm. um, I have seen numerous examples where um, councillors have supported allows the application and it's had to go to VCAT. Um, uh, there was one just recently where the, the owner wanted to chop down something uh, in excess of 400 trees to put in a um, put in an enormous house and it was just would have been a totally inappropriate development. The council supported it, the residents didn't and it went to VCAT and uh, subsequently got knocked over. Yeah, okay. Why was it the council supported it then? Ah, uh, well, the, that particular council had a very strong development uh, bent. Right, Jeremy. I think the thing that sticks in my mind is the the importance of owning a property is that you've got a stable residency. By the time people retire, they should be debt free, and they've got an asset against which they can borrow either for investment or any other mm -hmm. purposes. 
those people are much more likely to be the people who are the backbone of the local communities in which they live. They'll be part of the sporting groups, they'll be part of the environmental groups, they'll be part of the art and culture groups. Uh, but they'll be doing that because that's why they're living there and that's what they want to maintain, that character and amenity of the area. It is really important, isn't it, that I think it's a it's a great explanation as to why, you know, for us, population is such a important driver because we are a pack animal by, by definition, aren't we? Oh, um, absolutely. And, 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 oh. and then people in Victoria are finding, because we are, the great difficulty of living in a lockdown area. I mean, we understand why we've got to. But it is very difficult because we are this pack animal. We're correct, and we we you know we need to socialise, and community and involvement is very important to us. And and the better the community, you know, creates the desirability of of where we want to uh, to live and what community we want to be a part of, which um, is obviously reflective in the demands for housing. Um, which, when we think about it too, is that you know on on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, housing, you know, shelter is 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 one of our primary um, primary needs, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. So tell me this, um, Warwick. You um, you as the, the the mayor, you know, you did oversee um, some quite. Um, you know, there was a lot of responsibility that that sat on your shoulders. You walked into to a council that was financially um, not particularly stable. Um, you had uh, green versus development issues going on. Um, you also had uh, the fires uh, that, that, that came through and had an enormous impact on your community. Um, did the, resp- uh, the, the pressure and responsibility, did it weigh on you? Well, you're always conscious of it. I don't know that it ever weighed on me in that sense. Uh, I merely saw myself as part of a team. Um, and as a council, we we interacted on a very regular basis. There wasn't a week go by that you wouldn't be to- talking to your colleagues either collectively or individually on a number of occasions. And if you try to bring everybody together, you're much more likely to get a good outcome than if you've got a whole lot of people just running off doing their own thing and feeling that they are the only person on council that matters. Mm. I mean, we've been able to achieve some incredible things when I was there, and that was because we did operate as a team. We were prepared to um, drop some of the things that we might have wanted to do if we could be persuaded there was a better way of doing it or that it just wasn't going to have legs. So you're a man of great integrity, um, and did you ever feel the pressure from a particular vested interest group that wanted to uh, wanted council to make a particular decision that would benefit them? Uh, I, I was aware of it, but I was never. I, I wouldn't think it'd be fair to say that I was ever pressured by it. Um, I mean, I knew what I believed in and if it was a, an appropriate application then it would get a, a good hearing if it was an inappropriate one then it was chopped off at the socks um, with a recommendation that this is what you might need to change if you want to come back with a with another application mm. 
So can you explain then why some municipalities continue to perform better than others? Yeah, I think it depends, uh, Jeremy, entirely on whether the individual councillors are prepared to put aside their egos and work collectively in the best interests of their wider community, or whether it's either ego or party political driven, in which case there's no compromises. And, and that always results in lousy outcomes. So what about then the relationship between the state government and the local governments? How you know how is that power divided, and 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 what sort of relationship do you you know as a as a small new municipality have with the with the state government? Well, the, the local government is is but the bastard child of state government. I mean, it can be sort of dismissed in a, in the wave of a wand. Um, I always believed that the the voters didn't want to see conflict between the three spheres of government, federal, state and local. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always enjoyed the very best of relationships with the um, with both state and federal members of parliament um, because I saw that we were all supposed to be working basically in the same direction. Didn't mean I agreed with them all the time, but as far as the, the voters would... Um, would know we're all all working exactly the same in their best interest, um, and even some of the the uh, MPs that I personally disliked, nobody would have picked it if uh, if they'd been watching us interact, mm. because punters don't want to see those sorts of fights. Yeah, well, that's very true. So how does that work then, Warwick? When the state government is responsible for zoning and the um, local government responsible for um, planning approvals. So that must create some tension at times. Um, well, it, it can, but I can only say thank God that we uh, that it is that way, that the state government set the zoning. If it was up to individual councillors, we would have um, just a horrible mosaic of um, development that could take place in a four-year period uh, where trees were being knocked down to put up buildings. It never happens the other way. So, you know, once the tree's gone, it's gone. Yeah. You can't then knock buildings down to put trees up. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so I'm more than comfortable about the fact that the state government set the zonings because they look at it on a much bigger picture than an individual municipality does. Uh, and it's, it works fine with us doing the planning aspect um, because we've got clear guidelines. and All we're going to do is follow them. That's all. Well, that's, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting take on it, actually. Um, and you're right with regards to the state government, you know, creating some certainty and I guess a little bit longer term. And, and also, you know, by the sheer size of them, they have... Um, you know, experts that can look at a um, at a great number of you know different um, uh, different impacts. Whereas, as we've discussed before, you know, a council is responsible for all sorts of other services in addition to um, uh, to planning. Yep, yep. No, the, the big picture vision that the state government have in front of them 
uh, is far more important than some of those the more piddling aspects of local government. But uh, as I say, if we didn't have that zoning done statewide, it would be just a horrible outcome because you would get a lot more pressure put in by developers to get their people on council and they could, in a four-year period, just completely wreck the, the whole character of a municipality. So would I be putting words in your mouth if I said that you were... Uh, an advocate of the three levels of government that Australia exhibits? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Except I'm not keen on the word levels. I like to use the word spheres because there is no reason in my mind why um, councils have to go through state governments to tap into the federal government. It should be that there's a federal government program that the councils could perhaps go straight to them uh, for funding, support, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and we're moving a bit more in that direction. So it's not a, a, a tiered system; it's more a sphere system. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's really interesting, really interesting stuff. And I thank you, you know, for for joining me today, uh, Warwick, because you know, as we've discussed, you know, infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure spends that council makes can have a huge impact on. Uh, on the uh, the value of uh, of property, um, it can have a huge impact on the community. Um, the council itself will dictate what a what a community environment is like, um, which again, you know, either creates an environment where people are, are, are wanting to live in a particular zone or, or they're not. Um, you know, the government granted licences with regards to you know planning and, and permitting. You know, for that that councils undertake. It's a, it, it is just another example of how we don't tend to think about how these, you know, like like councils, how much of an impact council can have on property prices. And yet, there's huge decisions that are being made every day. You know, throughout Australia, that will impact uh, the values on properties. You know, because of the way it impacts those drivers. Absolutely. So Warwick, let's wrap it up there. I've, um, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together, um, and I do hope our listeners, um, you know, have taken something out of this um, particular discussion on their uh, on their property journey. Um, my name's Jeremy Cownan. Of course, we'd love you to um, to like and subscribe or leave us a rating at Property Australia's favourite obsession. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, just go to um, pafo.com.au. So that's the acronym for Property Australia's favourite obsession. Um, I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan. It's been great to have you with you. And until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. And Warwick, thanks for joining us. More than welcome. You've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Any opinions, views or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Your host, Jeremy Cownan and Cownan Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services Proprietary Limited. AFSL 384713